0: The Flannan Isles Lighthouse is a lighthouse near the highest point on Aylann Moor, meaning Big Isle, one of the Flannon Islands in the Outer Hebrides off the northwest coast of Scotland. It's part of a set of seven islets, also called the Seven Hunters. The lighthouse had been helping to guide ships and keep them safe while navigating the dangerous waters of the Outer Hebrides. The island of Aylann Moor had what some people would call peculiarities. It was always a place that sparked people's interests, and it always drew rumors about the goings-on of the island. Hello, and happy first of the month. I am LB, and this is the True Crime Chronicles podcast. If this is your first time finding me, then welcome. I'm happy you're here. If you've been here before, welcome back. I'm also happy you're here. The first of the month is a series I do here called History's Mysteries, where I focus on a true crime or a mystery event from history that may or may not have been solved. So be sure to follow me so you don't miss an episode. Like, comment, leave me a rating, all the categories. It would help me out a ton, and I would appreciate it greatly. Just as a side note also, there is a lot of Scottish words and names in this episode. I have done a ton of Googling to make sure that I am pronouncing them correctly, so I will do my best on that front. The Flannon Isle is named after a 7th century Irish bishop who later became a saint. I've seen that it's St. Flannon. I've also seen that it is St. Cormac. I do know that when you reach sainthood, at times they do change your name. So I don't know if that's maybe where the disconnect is in that, but I wanted to include both names. Now, this Irish bishop. He built a chapel on the island, and for centuries, only shepherds would come to Moor, and that was only to bring their sheep to graze. But they would never stay the night, and they would always make sure that they would leave before dark. The shepherds would refer to the island as the other country. The people believed that moor was a place touched by something paranormal. Just the name had, for centuries, instilled fear in its visitors. No one lives on the island, it's uninhabited, except for the sheep, and that is still true to this day. The main draw to the island was always the chapel that was built by St. Flannan. Even those who weren't religious or weren't really known to pray regularly, or even not at all, once they were on the island of Aylenmore, there was Something that they felt they were moved to worship at this chapel and not just to pray. Superstitions and rituals were adopted by those who were just passing through, like circling the church's ruins on your knees. In addition to people believing something paranormal is connected to the island or the fear that spirits haunt it after dark, many people were just unable to even define the aura, just this, this undefined feeling that they felt when they were on the Moore Island, they felt that it just kind of emitted or it put out a very unsettling feeling. They didn't know why they felt unsettled. They didn't know where it came from, but they knew that they felt it and they didn't want to come back to the island anymore. And a lot of people, once they did make that initial visit, they were so afraid they would never come back again. Construction of the Flannan Isles Lighthouse took place between 1895 and 1899. It was a 23-meter or 75-foot-tall lighthouse that was designed by David Allen Stevenson for the Northern Lighthouse Board, or the NLB. The construction of the lighthouse was undertaken by George Lawson of Rutherglen, with a cost at 1,899 pounds, Estimated to be about 233,361 pounds in 2021. Which, I don't know, I feel like it seems like that's not that much considering the undertaking that the building of this lighthouse was. However, that cost was just for the lighthouse alone. Besides just building the lighthouse, landing places, stairs, and railway tracks were needed in order to haul materials um, so that they could get resupplies up to the lighthouse. And all of the materials used, they had to be taken up 45 meter or 148 foot cliffs directly from supply boats. Now, in addition to the cost of the lighthouse, a further 3,526 pounds in in today's time, roughly 433,298 pounds, was spent on the shore station on the Isle of Lewis. So at the time that this lighthouse was built, it was very modern, it was really up to date, and it was a really, it was a good lighthouse. So a lot of the other lighthouses, they weren't as safe, they weren't as high up. And being a lightkeeper was very dangerous. So this was definitely one that you would want to be stationed at. And the Flannan Lighthouse was first lit on December 7th of 1899. In December of 1900, a boat called the Hesperus was headed to the island of Ailandmore. It was captained by Captain James Harvey. The Hesperus was delivering a relief lighthouse keeper, Joseph Moore, as part of their regular rotation. The Hesperus was set to arrive on Moore, December 20th. However. Their journey was delayed almost a week due to bad weather. So when Captain Harvey and the relief crew finally did arrive around noon on December 26th, also known as Boxing Day, they were expected to be greeted by Thomas Marshall, James Duckett, and Donald MacArthur. The lighthouse was manned by three men, with a rotating fourth man spending time on shore. I don't have a lot of information on these men as far as who they were as people outside of their jobs at the lighthouse. It's a very old case and trying to find any type of, you know, documentation or anything that's verified about them was pretty hard. So I did include everything I could find. Donald MacArthur. He was a married man with two children. He was from Breeze Cleat. He was 40 years old and he was supporting a family he held the occasional keeper position. Now an occasional keeper typically was a lighthouse keeper that would attend the station on a daily basis while living locally. Donald was known to be a pretty experienced mariner and he was also a previous soldier, but he was known to be a absolute hothead. He had a temper on him that was very well known. Like his reputation definitely preceded him. Donald was known to often be confrontational and a frequent and very tough brawler. So definitely not a man to be messed with. Very hair-trigger temper. And he was actually filling in on duty for first assistant William Ross, who was out on an extended sick leave. James Duckett was also a family man. He was 43 years old, from Arbroth, and he was married with four children. James Duckett was the principal keeper, Now, a principal light keeper, and an assistant light keeper. They are responsible for keeping the light and the fog signal in perfect working order at all times. At night, the keepers would take turns keeping watch in the light room to make sure that the light was working properly all the time. James was very experienced, and not only in the mariner and lightkeeper industry, but with that particular lighthouse itself. Duckett had been selected to run the lighthouse while it was still under construction, and he had spent a total of 14 months on Aylen Moore. And not just the 14 months, but he had spent two decades in the lighthouse service. So he was a very knowledgeable and a very experienced Keeper. Now the third man, Thomas Marshall, he was the second assistant lightkeeper, and I couldn't really find much on him except that he was single. He had no wife and he had no children. So, noon, December 26th. The relief crew for the lighthouse being brought by Captain Harvey and the Hesperus. They make it to shore where no one comes to greet them, which was definitely off. Like this was not a normal vibe. Joseph Moore was coming to relieve one of the keepers and begin his six-week shift or rotation at the lighthouse. And by sheer chance, Joseph was replaced on the previous duty rotation so that he could spend Christmas at home with his children. Now, there was already some notice of abnormal and concerning things that had been recently reported about the lighthouse. The first record of note that something was amiss at the lighthouse was on December 15th, about 11 days before Joseph Moore and the Hesperus arrived at Alan Moore. A steamer named the Arctur, who was on a passage from Philadelphia to Leith, they noted in their log that they noticed the light in the lighthouse was not on. It didn't seem to be operational. And this stood out more so to them than normal due to the poor weather conditions that day. But it wasn't just the Arctur ship or steamer that noticed it. That night, there was also the Fairwind ship that happened to be passing over the islands. And the crew was astonished that the lighthouse wasn't lit. They couldn't see. They had no lighting. And there was heavy rain accompanied by strong winds. So once that ship docked at their destination, they also gave a report that the lighthouse was not operational when they went through. When the Arctur steamer docked in Leith on the 18th of December, they also passed the information on to the Northern Lighthouse Board that the Flannan Lighthouse was not operational. So the Hespers was sort of informed about the possibility of there being a situation on Aylan Moore with the lighthouse. Upon their approach to the island, Captain Harvey fired a rocket, or it was a flare of some sort, into the air. And I'm assuming this was to announce to the existing crew of their presence, but there was no response. So he blew his horn several times, but again, there was no response. Once they make it to the island, Joseph Morris sends onto Aylann Moore alone to kind of check things out and see what's going on. Joseph is noted to have said that as he gets onto the island and he begins to climb the 160 steps to make it up to the lighthouse, he feels, quote, an encompassing sense of dread, unquote. He didn't know why. He couldn't explain it, but he knew he felt something and it wasn't good. And as he's climbing the stairs, what he did see at the very top were three giant blackbirds perched at just the very top of the steps. Which obviously didn't help that overwhelming sense of foreboding that he was already feeling. And me personally, it would probably freak me the fuck out. I, I don't know. I, I'm i kind of big into omens and just stuff like that. And if I would have seen that coupled with everything else that had sort of already you know, that I knew up to that point, it would have freaked me out. And it definitely did make Joseph feel a little uncomfortable. So some of the first things that Joseph noticed right off the bat that were sort of off was that the flag staff had no flag and that was definitely not normal. There were none of the usual provision boxes typically left on the landing stage for restocking. There was no one to greet them. No responses to the horn or the flare rocket that had been fired by Captain Harvey. So the concerns are really starting to pile up at this point. Joseph had no idea what to think, what to expect, and he had to investigate alone. And that had to be just so incredibly nerve wracking. I think that's really the only way I guess I could describe how I feel like he would have been feeling in that moment just scared, probably worried for his colleagues. I don't know if he was friends with some of them, but it seemed like everybody sort of knew the other people in this circle. And I feel like it would have been very anxiety-inducing. And that is especially considering the reputation that the island already had for strange goings-on, paranormal activity, and just kind of the the legends and kind of folklore that the locals knew of this island. So Joseph makes it to the lighthouse and he finds the entrance gate to the compound and the main door of the lighthouse, both closed, locked, and completely secure. So once Joseph gains entry into the lighthouse, all that anxiety, all the fear, and that sort of sixth sense he had that something was wrong, Well, it was all completely confirmed. Something was clearly very, very wrong. No one was there. And it wasn't just that everyone was missing or gone. Now, just the fact that they were gone, though, that is a big not to do a big rule break because someone was supposed to be at the lighthouse at all times. They could not all leave together. So that was obviously a huge concern. And these men were experienced men. They knew that they couldn't leave. But it wasn't just that. The lighthouse looked like a scene just frozen in time. The clocks were stopped. The beds were unmade. And a kitchen chair was laid sideways on the floor like someone had jumped up very quickly and knocked it over. A half-eaten meal of meat, pickles, and potatoes were also left on the table. A canary was on its perch, but it was half starved. It had no food, no water. It was a pet that they kept in the lighthouse, and it was in pretty bad shape. So Joseph sees this, and he immediately returns to the Hesperus to report his findings. Joseph then returns to the lighthouse with the Hesperus's second mate and a seaman. Now all three men are searching the lighthouse, and they went on to kind of find some other disturbing things. The lamps were cleaned and refilled, so they were ready to go. Two out of three sets of oil skins were missing, with one set still left hung in the lighthouse hallway. So oil skins are garments. They're typically worn by sailors, fishermen, and others that are working or living in wet areas or conditions. So it's basically a heavy cloth and it's Winterproofed or waterproofed with oil. And it was developed to address the need for something like really heavy-duty and protective against the natural elements that sailors and others in that similar condition had to deal with and they had to work in. So three light keepers, there should be three sets of outerwear. Three missing keepers, but only two sets of outerwear were missing. So ultimately Joseph Moore and three volunteer seamen were left on the island to attend to the lighthouse. The Hesperus and captain Harvey returned to the Isle of Lewis in order to send a telegram to the Northern lighthouse board in Edinburgh. And the telegraph reads as this, a dreadful accident has happened at Flannan's. The three keepers, Duckett Marshall and the occasional have disappeared from the island. Upon our arrival, There this afternoon, there is no sign of life to be seen on the island. Fired a rocket, but as no response was made, managed to land Joseph Moore, who went up to the station but found no keepers there. The clocks stopped and other signs indicated that the accident must have happened about a week ago. Poor fellows, they must have been blown over the cliffs or drowned trying to secure a crane or something like that. Night coming on, we could not wait to make something as to their fate. I have left Moore, McDonald, Boymaster, and Two Seamen on the Island to keep the light burning until you make other arrangements. Will not return to Oban until I hear from you. I have repeated this wire to Muirhead in case you are not at home. I will remain at the telegraph office tonight until it closes if you wish to wire me. Now, while Captain Harvey was at Lewis sending the telegram and awaiting a reply back, he instructs the men to scour the island, see what they can see and see if they can find any sign or clue as to the fate of the three missing men. On Aylan Moore, Joseph Moore, Seaman Lamont and Campbell, along with Boymaster master Alan McDonald, they spread out and they scoured every corner, every inch, every part of this island, trying to find something or anything that could give some sort of clue or resolution as to what happened to the three men. The men found that everything on the east landing was intact. It looked normal and everything looked as it should be. But the west landing, that was a completely different story the west landing showed considerable damage that had been caused by recent storms. There was a box at 33 meters or 108 feet above sea level that had been broken open and the contents were just strewn about all over the ground. Iron railings were completely bent over. The iron railway by the path was completely ripped out of its concrete holdings and a rock weighing more than a ton had been completely displaced from its original resting spot. On top of a cliff that, more than 60 meters or 200 feet above sea level, the turf on the top of the cliff had been completely ripped away, as far as 10 meters or 33 feet from the cliff's edge. So it was clear that something pretty serious and obviously pretty violent had occurred at some point around the area of the West Landing. December 29th, 1900. Robert Muirhead, who was a superintendent of the Northern Lighthouse Board, he arrives on Aylen Moore to begin the official investigation into the missing light keepers and what incident could have possibly led to their disappearance. Now, while this investigation was a part of his job, it was also somewhat personal for Robert. Robert was the person who had originally recruited and hired all three of the missing men and he knew each of them personally. So Superintendent Robert arrives to the lighthouse and he begins his investigation. But he finds nothing outside of what Joseph Moore and the three seamen had reported. Except for one thing. And it's very disputed over whether they actually exist or not. In most articles that I read and, you know, several shows that I had watched or podcasts that I listened to, they say, yes, they existed. But several articles and podcasts also said, no, these never existed. Now there was one person that says he figured out that they were fake and never existed. So, Because there is a pretty even amount on either side, I'm going to include this. But I'm just going to tell you, I really don't know which side is accurate. And the item that I am referring to that is in such dispute is the lighthouse logbook. Now, when Robert looks at the logbooks, he immediately notices that something looks off. The last few entries in the log were quite unusual and they didn't seem to make much sense to Robert. On December 12th, second assistant keeper, Thomas Marshall, he makes a note in the log books documenting severe winds, the likes of which I have never seen before in 20 years. A notation was also made that James Duckett, the principal keeper, had been very quiet and that the third assistant and occasional Donald MacArthur had been crying. Now, on the next day's notation, Thomas Marshall makes note of continuing storms that were raging and wrote that all three men were praying. And the final notation was made on December 15th, and it reads, Storm ended, see calm, God is over all. So a number of things that stood out and just made no sense with these logbook entries. Starting with the first entry of Donald MacArthur crying. Now multiple reasons why Robert felt like this just didn't make sense. First off, if you'll remember, MacArthur was known to be a complete and total badass and was well known on the Scottish mainland as a badass and a very tough brawler. He would not hesitate to just bow the fuck up with anyone at any time. He also had a very solid resume and reputation as a very tough, very experienced, and very seasoned mariner, you know, or a seafarer, lighthouse keeper. So why the fuck would this man be crying over a storm? So that was very, very odd. The second entry also had just very odd details included about the men praying while storms continued to rage outside. Why would they have been praying? All three of these men are very seasoned and experienced light keepers. And they had been keepers in much worse places and conditions than the Flannan. They were in a brand new, you know, top of the line, high tech for the time lighthouse. It was one year old, and it was approximately 150 feet above sea level. So they were in a very safe structure. So why are they praying for a storm to stop? And on the final entry, God is over all. What would they have meant by that? Now, I definitely wanna know if at any other point had God been mentioned before in the logbooks, was Thomas Marshall a normally religious man? Or was this really just something that was out of the blue and made no sense? And supposedly, the strangest part of the logbooks was that absolutely no storms had been reported in the area on December 12th, 13th, and 14th of December. In fact, quite the opposite. The weather was quite calm during that time span. Now, the storm that caused all of the damage on the West landing on the island, it was from a very severe storm, but that storm didn't hit until December 17th. So it would have been days after the men were thought to have gone missing. And some people say that there is a reason the logbooks make no sense. And that's because they're not real. They never existed. And this is a theory that journalist Mike Dash of the Fortune Times believes. He did his own investigation and said that he found absolutely no evidence of their existence and that the story of the logbooks was not interjected into the story until years later. And this was the only article I found that referred to the logbooks being fake. Like I said, a lot of the articles and podcasts and stuff that I had listened to or documentaries I read or watched, the logbooks were always mentioned as existing and being present and that they were found by the NLB superintendent, Robert Muirhead. So as for the logbooks existence, I'll kind of leave that up to you whether you believe they existed or not. So after checking the logs, Robert went to look at the remaining set of oil skins that was left hanging in the entrance hallway. So why was there one set of outerwear left inside, but no light keepers? That meant that one of the men had gone outside without it. And this was mid-December. It was bitterly, bitterly cold out at this time of year especially being almost 200 feet above sea level, surrounded completely by water. It would have been just, I mean, it would have been absolutely freezing out. And if you believe the logbooks exist, it was also violently raining outside or stormy. So what would have caused one of the keepers to have run outside so quickly that he didn't have time to put his much needed outerwear on and go outside in just shirt sleeves? the average January temperature in the outer Hebrides is six degrees Celsius. So December temperatures in 1900 would have been considerably colder, plus the violent rain and cold seawater. Water in the outer Hebrides, it's coldest in February and March, and that's at around five degrees Celsius. But again, it would have been quite a bit colder in 1900, especially due to, you know, the climate change now as to what it would have been in December and just general environmental changes. I do feel like it probably would have been a lot colder in December of 1900 than it would be in December now. Also, rules and regulations stated that someone had to remain on duty at the lighthouse at all times. It was not allowed for all keepers to either leave together or to all be gone or out at the same time. So Robert made a note that whoever was the last one to leave the lighthouse and leave it unattended was in direct breach of NLP rules. And these men were very well versed with the rules. Again, these are experienced men. They would have known that leaving the lighthouse unattended was absolutely prohibited, That it's just not allowed. So the last keeper to have left the lighthouse, they must have felt that whatever the reason that they left and they left the lighthouse unattended and against the rules, they had to feel that whatever was going on was important enough to blatantly break and disregard one of the most important NLB rules. Robert Muirhead's official report stated, from careful examination of the place, railings, rope, etc., weighing all evidence, which I was able to procure, I was satisfied that the men had been on duty up until dinner time on Saturday the 15th of December, that they had gone down to secure a box in which the mooring ropes, landing ropes, etc., were kept and which was secured in a crevice in the rock at about 110 feet or 34 meters above the sea level. And that an extra large sea had rushed up the face of the rock and had gone above them, and in coming down with intense force, had swept them completely away. I have considered and discussed the possibility of the men being blown away by the wind, but as the wind was westerly, I am of the opinion, notwithstanding its great force, that the more probable explanation is that they have been washed away, as had the wind caught them, it would, from its direction, have blown them up the island, and I feel certain that they would have managed to throw themselves down before they reached the summit or the brow of the island, concluding that a tragic accident was the case. But this you'll find was not going to be an accepted resolution by everyone. And since Superintendent Robert knew the men personally and had personally recruited them, he was quite rattled, not only by their disappearance, but by being the last person to have seen the missing three men because robert also included in this report i visited flannan islands when the relief was made so lately as the 7th of december and have the melancholy recollection that i was the last person to shake hands with them and to bid them adieu which would probably be a somewhat unsettling feeling for sure especially if you know you're knowing the men on a personal level as well as professionally I would probably feel some type of way about that, also. Just kind of sad, little unsettling, kind of spooky a little bit, right? Now, Captain Harvey of the Hesperus, who was a first responder, right, if you will, to the situation on Islandmore. Now, his information was also included in this final report. Now, the telegram that was sent by Captain Harvey to Superintendent Robert and to the N.L.B. That was included in this report. Just to kind of recap the telegram, the captain felt that the three men had been blown over a cliff or drowned, washed away, or taken out to sea, trying to secure equipment. He sent Joseph Moore up the steps to the lighthouse where he found the men to be missing. And not only were the men missing, but he also found the lighthouse to be in a Curious and somewhat unsettling state. Captain Harvey leaves Joseph Moore and three other people on the island to maintain the lighthouse, but also to search for the men or to search for clues as to what happened to the men. So the captain takes the Hesperus to Lewis in order to send the telegram. And in his report, outside of the telegram, Captain Harvey also added. Nothing appears touched at East Landing to show that they were taken from there. On the West Side Landing, it is somewhat different. We had an old box halfway up the railway for holding West Landing mooring ropes and tackle, and it has gone. Some of the ropes, it appears, got washed out of it, and they lie strewn on the rocks near the crane. The crane itself is safe. Was the West Landing where the men died? Now, there's no indication that it was there. The poor men lost their lives. And this was how Captain Harvey finished up his report about, you know, his first responding to the island. Now, Joseph Moore's report is also included in this final report about what had happened at Aylen Moore. And his statement is this. Sir, it was with deep regret I wish you to learn the very sad affair that has taken place here during the past fortnight, namely the disappearance of two fellow light keepers, Mr. Duckett and Mr. Marshall, together with the occasional keeper, Donald Macarthur, from off this island. As you are aware, the relief was made on the twenty-sixth. That day, as on other relief days, we came to anchorage under Flannan Island, and not seeing the lighthouse flag flying we thought they did not perceive us coming. The steamer's horn was sounded several times, still no response. At last, Captain Harvey deemed it prudent to lower a boat and land a man if it was possible. I was the first to land, leaving Mr. McCormick and others in the boat till I should return from the lighthouse. I went up, and on coming to the entrance gate, I found it closed. I made for entrance door, leading to the kitchen and storeroom, found it also closed, and the door inside that, but the kitchen door itself was open. Upon entering the lighthouse, I looked at the fireplace and saw that the fire was not lighted for some days. I then entered the rooms in succession, found the beds empty as they left them in the early morning. I did not take time to search further, for I only too well knew something serious had occurred. I darted out and made for the landing. When I reached there, I informed Mr. McCormick that the place was deserted. He, with some of the men, came up a second time, so as to make sure. And unfortunately, the first impression was only too true. Mr. McCormick and myself proceeded to the light room where everything was in proper order. The lamp was cleaned, the fountain full, blinds on the windows, etc. We left and proceeded on board the steamer. On arrival, Captain Harvey ordered me back again to the island, accompanied with Mr. McDonald, who was the boymaster, master, A. Campbell and A. Lamont, who were on duty with me till timely aid should arrive. We went ashore and proceeded up to the light room and lighted the light in the proper time that night and every night since. The following day, we traversed the island from end to end. Still nothing to be seen to convince us how it happened. Nothing appears touched at East Landing to show that they were taken from there. As all are in their respective places in the shelter, just as they were left after the relief on the 7th. Now, on the west side, it is somewhat different. We had an old box halfway up the railing for holding West Landing mooring ropes and tackle, and it has gone. Some of the ropes, it appears, got washed out of it, and they lie strewn on the rocks near the crane but the crane is is safe. The iron railings along the passage, connecting railway with the footpath to the landing and started from their foundation have broken in several places. There's also railing around the crane and handrail for making mooring rope faster for boating. It's entirely carried away. Now there's nothing to give us an indication that it was there that the poor men lost their lives only that Mr. Marshall has his sea boots on and oil skins. Also, Mr. Duckett has his sea boots on. He had no oil skin, only an old waterproof coat, and that is a way. Donald MacArthur has his wearing coat left behind him, which shows, as far as I have known, that he went out in shirt sleeves. He never used any other coat on previous occasions, only the one that I am referring to. So Joseph Moore felt that he knew the men well enough from working previous rotations with them that he would know what the men would or would not have been wearing if they were going to go out of the lighthouse in December weather. And according to Joseph's report, Mr. Thomas Marshall and Mr. James Duckett would have been the two men that were outside first for whatever reason, and that Donald MacArthur was the one who would have left the lighthouse without a jacket, obviously in a hurry, and also in direct breach of the NLB rules and regulations. And this was based off of the clothing that was and was not in the lighthouse. So why would two of the keepers go out in such severe weather, if you believe the login books, in order to secure a box? Well, research done by James Love led to a discovery of information that Thomas Marshall had previously been fined five shillings when his equipment was washed away during a huge gale. So possibly in an attempt to avoid another fine, he went out to try and make sure that all of the equipment was secured down. So just for some context, five shillings in 1900 was equivalent to about $1.35 in the United States which would roughly be about 3240 to today. I think that was the information I was able to find on Google. But I'm not for sure how super accurate that is. So it appears that it wasn't a huge fine. And Thomas Marshall was single, he didn't have children, but the other two men, they were married and they did have kids. So while it's not a huge fine, when you're married and supporting multiple children, spending any amount of unnecessary money on what I'm sure in you know their minds was an avoidable fine. So that's something that I'm sure would have most definitely crossed their minds. So what happened to Thomas Marshall, James Duckett, and Donald MacArthur? I guess that really depends on who you ask. There have been A lot of theories that have surrounded what happened to the men but there are four pretty accepted theories and those are accident misadventure paranormal or by design now one accidental theory this is the most widely accepted theory but it is definitely not believed by everyone and even though it is probably the one that could make the most sense there are still a lot of holes that are left open and just not filled in. So the official explanation was that there must have been some sort of localized weather happening at Moore on December 15th, 1900. Local reports had said that there had been no bad weather until December 17th. The Flannan Isles are known for their tumultuous seas and violent storms, and that can happen Like, the weather can turn pretty quickly. But again, the weather conditions are a big source of confusion. The Flannan Lighthouse was able to be seen from the nearby Isle of Lewis at the time that the men disappeared. And if bad weather had been happening in the area, the lighthouse would have been unable to be seen. So if some localized weather was happening, as is the theory It was bad enough that two of the men, Thomas Marshall and James Duckett, they were concerned enough about their equipment being secure that they decided to brave this weather to make sure the equipment was safe. Now, why would they do this instead of staying safely inside the lighthouse? Well, the previous fine on lost equipment during previous weather is thought to be behind the big push to head out in the dangerous weather. Losing five shillings in 1900 was not a small matter. So to those investigating the disappearance, they were not at all surprised that securing the equipment was more important to Thomas Marshall and possibly the other two men than their own personal safety. And James Duckett went out with him to help, leaving Donald MacArthur behind, per the rules, to man the lighthouse. So... This sends out the two keepers to the West Landing, where, according to the official report, an unexpected rogue and massive wave comes along and just overtakes the two men and washes them out to sea, never to be found again. After some time goes by, Donald MacArthur makes the decision to break the NLB rules and leave the lighthouse to go and look for his two crewmen. And I imagine that this decision was a pretty difficult one for a very seasoned mariner to make, to leave the lighthouse unattended. So supposedly, MacArthur heads out to check on his people. And he heads out, and according to the report, he then also was overtaken by a rogue wave and washed out to sea as well. Same fate as the other two men. Now I'm going to go over why this could be Possible, but also why it doesn't quite make sense either Some of my questions are What is the likelihood that all three men are swept out to sea by localized rogue waves? Well According to subsequent researchers of the islands the geography of Aelin Moore should definitely be taken into consideration The coastline of Moor is deeply indented with narrow gullies, they're called geos. The west landing is actually situated in one of these geos and it terminates into a cave. So in high seas or storms, water would rush into the cave and then explode out again with considerable force. So the thought is that while the two men were out attempting to secure their equipment, Donald MacArthur may have seen a series of large waves approaching the island and knowing the likely danger that was coming to his colleagues outside, he jumps up and runs outside to try to warn them or maybe try and help them, only to be washed away by the violent force of the water. Okay, so working within this scenario, I could maybe see a crazy rogue wave hitting the two men while they're securing the equipment and washing them out to sea. But a second wave that also takes out a third person. I don't know. I mean, unless it was that he maybe saw approaching weather or the approaching waves and he went out and they were all three maybe washed out together. But that's a lot of ifs and that's a lot of could have, maybe, possibly. I don't know how likely that would be to have actually happened. But if it did happen, and again, working within this scenario, why did none of the bodies ever wash up? Supposedly the seas were calm, but were they? The steamer Arctur, one of the vessels that reported the lighthouse being dark, mentioned that he really took notice because there were poor weather conditions. Now, I don't know if poor meant foggy, rainy, a lot of waves or storms. I don't know. And the other ship, they reported heavy rains and strong winds. Is that poor conditions, though? Or is that just kind of typical when you're out in the middle of water? I I don't know. I couldn't really pinpoint that, so I'm not sure. Also, the West Landing damage was guessed to have been done after the men disappeared on December 17th. Now these were very experienced men. Are these the chain of decisions that very experienced keepers would have made? Some members of the Northern Lighthouse Board were just not convinced that that was the case. A big one for them was the lack of bodies that washed ashore. There was nothing not clothing, not a shoe, not one of the the men. There was nothing that came ashore that would have indicated that these men were washed out to sea. Even if Donald MacArthur had left to go search for or warn his colleagues, why would he not go outside without putting on his oil skins, especially with it being December in the Outer Hebrides? What happened that would require him to go outside so quickly that he did not have time to put on outerwear. But according to all reports, he did have time to lock and secure the door to the lighthouse and the outer gate. Now, in addition to the chair at the kitchen table being knocked over and half eaten food on the table, was everyone eating? And then the two men got up in the middle of their dinners? What caused Donald MacArthur to jump up so quickly in the middle of his dinner to the point that the chair gets knocked over and he runs out and he doesn't stop to pick it up. The rogue wave theory also doesn't address why all the clocks were stopped. Unless, you know, maybe they had to be wound and maintained every day. And if they weren't in the lighthouse, obviously to maintain them, they wouldn't keep time and eventually they would stop. I'm not really sure how the clocks worked in the lighthouse. So that is a possibility. Now, what other reasoning, you know, would there have been for the clocks to have stopped? That's the only thing I can really think of, you know, a battery, they weren't being wound or there was some type of damage to the clock that stopped it at the time that the damage occurred. I think that could be a possibility also. I just don't know. Ultimately, I have a hard time thinking that two men went out to secure equipment and when they didn't return you know, the one man was just eating dinner and then jumped up, knocking over a chair, running outside in very cold weather, leaving his outerwear inside, but yet takes the time to lock and secure the door to the lighthouse in the outer gate. That particular chain of events or reactional behavior, that doesn't make sense to me. I, I don't understand why that would happen the way that it did and one freak wave during localized weather taking out two people, and then while looking for them with time in between, yet another freak wave comes in and takes out the third person too. I I don't know. I thought of a couple other possible scenarios, but I don't know how likely it would be for these either. But what if the two men did go out and attempt to secure equipment and the rogue wave took them out. After a while, Donald MacArthur goes to look for them, realizes a freak accident occurred, and he panics. He's known to be a, somewhat of a volatile character, right? He's known to brawl at the drop of a hat, and maybe he felt like no one would believe him if he said, you know, these two men disappeared, they were washed out to sea, and I went to look for them, and poof, they're gone, right? And so maybe, he decides to leave the island somehow. He was the occasional keeper. So that meant that he did have ties very locally around the island. Or, I guess if you want to go like the super dramatic route, maybe he threw himself into the water. I don't know. Or, and I'm just going to put this one out there, what if the three men were eating dinner and they saw a boat or... Boats, right? Like a couple of them coming up to the island and maybe there was ill intentions or the men thought that there might have been ill intentions. So following NLB regulations, two of the men go out to intercept the boats and see what was going on just to greet the people. And in doing that, you know, maybe Donald MacArthur hears something that concerns him arguing, or a gunshot, who knows, and he jumps up and runs out. Now, with him being the most volatile person, maybe that's why the other two men went, to try and avoid an unnecessary confrontation. Now, another theory that really plays off of the accident or rogue wave theory, it came from Walter Aldebert and he was a keeper on the Flannins from 1953 to 1957. And his thought is that one man may have been washed out to sea. But then when his crew members tried to help or rescue him, they too were taken out to sea. So there are there's just possibilities and holes in that thought process as well, and I think there's going to be and probably all of them because the bottom line is we just don't know. And these are all as educated of guesses as we could make. So the second theory is the misadventure theory. And this theory focuses on the psychology of the light keepers on Aylan Moore. Many believe that a fight broke out due to Donald MacArthur's very volatile, very brawler type of confrontational attitude and behavior. The isolation of the job and the very close quarters of the crew could have led to an eruption between the men, leading them to fighting and going off the side of one of the cliffs, or the fight leading to one or more being thrown off the cliffs by MacArthur, who then, because of guilt or panic, then throws himself into the sea as well. That's a very dramatic theory, right? And I don't know that I put much stock into this one either, Donald MacArthur, well, yes, okay, he might have had a bad temper, but he had a family. He had a wife and he had children. And he was, he was older, so I'm sure he would have been able to control himself if needed, at least to some extent. Plus, you know, I, I don't know what level of isolation they had to deal with because it seemed that the rotation was every six weeks. So I would think, you know, definitely that's a doable schedule. These are seasoned mariners, and I'm sure used to much, much worse working conditions or longer stretches of time out on the sea or by themselves. Although some people would say that MacArthur, he hated his posting at the lighthouse and that he went insane. And they base this off of him going outside without his outerwear. And if you believe the existence of the logbooks, his very strange behavior that was documented on the 12th through the 14th in those. But nothing inside the lighthouse or honestly, even outside the lighthouse showed evidence of a brawl of any type, let alone three very grown men fighting. The only disturbance was one knocked over chair. So, not hardly an indication of a brawl leading to the death of three people. None of the men had any prior instances of physical conflict with coworkers or any history of mental health issues. So, I just I don't think this one fits either. Theory three is the paranormal theory. Aylan Moore already had a paranormal history to it long before the lighthouse was built and the three men went missing. One of the popular theories is that something paranormal happened on the island, specifically the phantoms of the Seven Hunters. It's said that these spirits resented the intrusion of the lighthouse on the island, and as a result, it lured the men to their deaths. This is actually a pretty popular theory among people local to around the Outer Hebrides. Alien abduction, that's also a somewhat popular theory as well. And the last relatively accepted theory would be the disappearance by design. And this theory is that basically the men all decided to leave the island to start new lives somewhere else, which that doesn't make much sense either. Where would they go? And how would they get there? Two of them were married with children. So I don't see them just up and leaving and abandoning their family. It doesn't make much, if any sense, at all. Is it possible? I mean, I guess anything is possible because really, we don't know what happened. But is it plausible? I don't think so. And they didn't have boats. They were brought in and taken away from the island on rotation, the way that the Hesperus was bringing in Joseph Moore as a relief in their duty rotation. So they didn't even have you know, availability For a boat to just take off and leave if that was what they wanted to do. It's also been suggested that foreign spies kidnapped the men and did something with them. What? We don't know. So with no solid evidence to really back up any theory, the rumors about the missing lightkeepers intensified and continued to grow as years went on with no answers ever coming. But because of the lack of answers and the growing interest and the growing theories, it made it difficult for the Northern Lighthouse Board to employ new keepers. There was just a dark shadow that loomed over the Flannon Isles Lighthouse. Now, the login books. The login books are talked about in almost every article, but I couldn't find any evidence of the log books or the actual entries supposedly, that were put in the logbooks. The official reports at the time showed the final entry in the lighthouse log as being made on December 13th, with notes about the weather taken on a slate to be officially put into the logbook at a later date. So if the login entries are real and the storm was over before the men disappeared, then yes, I would think that foul play would be a much more likely possibility but the logs don't match what the local weather was supposed to have been. The mystery and the lore surrounding the lighthouse have inspired numerous types of media over the past 123 years. In 1977, an episode of Doctor Who with Tom Baker focused on the lighthouse mystery, which blamed their disappearances on a shape-shifting alien. Yeah. Peter Gabriel and Mike Rutherford from Genesis wrote and recorded the mystery of Flannan Isle Lighthouse in 1968 while working on their first album, but it was not released until 1998 in Genesis Archive 1967 through 75. There were several poems and musical scores, operas throughout the years as well that focused on the mystery of the three missing lightkeepers. But the most famous form of media is probably the 2018 British psychological thriller, The Vanishing. And this was previously titled Just Keepers. They use the three keepers' first names, but they don't match up with the ages and the personal life profiles of the actual original three men. When I first watched it, when I started to research this case, I thought this movie is ridiculous. Like, this is stupid as fuck. I didn't want to finish watching it. And I like Gerard Butler, right? Kind of a fan. So, I I was kind of excited to see it. But then once I started watching it, I thought, wow. To say that they really took some liberties with this story would be an understatement. I thought it was so far-fetched. And honestly, I thought it was a stupid fucking movie. But... (laughs) now. Now that I've researched it and processed it a little bit, I came to realize that my general theory about what I think could have possibly happened is a lot in line with the plot of the movie. It's not quite as dramatic as the movie, but I definitely believe that something similar could have happened. So I'm going to read you the plot of the movie as described by Wikipedia. Three men begin their six-week shift tending to the remote Flannan Isles Lighthouse. Donald, the youngest, is inexperienced and learning the trade of the lighthouse keeper from James and Thomas. James has a family waiting for him on the mainland. Thomas is still mourning the loss of his wife and children. After a storm, the men discover a boat, a body, and a wooden chest that's washed ashore. Donald descends the cliffs to check on the man who appears to be lifeless. As they haul the chest, the man awakens and attacks Donald. A fight ensues, and it's a pretty violent one, actually. And Donald ends up smashing the man's head with a rock in self-defense. And the man, he dies. Thomas is against opening the chest. He does not want anything to do with it. But does so alone, and he keeps the findings to himself. Eventually, the other two give in to their curiosity and they discover several gold bars inside. Urging caution and secrecy, Thomas proposes they dispose of the body and sneak the gold back to the mainland and lie low for a year before splitting up their shares of the gold. Now, the other ones are against this because they know it's not just going to be this one guy, right? Like there is going to be someone looking for this man And looking for this missing gold, right? And that's exactly what happens. Another boat arrives shortly after, I believe it's the next day, with two men. They're strangers to the lighthouse keepers, and their last names are Locke and Boar. And they are crewmates of the man that Donald murdered. So they interrogate Thomas, who claims that the body and the cargo have been reported, you know, per the NLB rules and taken away, and this is protocol. The visitors leave, but attempt to contact the lighthouse by radio. Thomas and James are unable to respond due to their malfunctioning radio, revealing their lie. So the strangers return, and they circle the island until nightfall. And there's a fight, obviously, breaks out, right? So in a violent struggle, James manages to strangle Boar, and Donald kills Locke using like a like a wood board of some sort. Sensing another intruder outside, the keepers chase him through the darkness and James slashes this other intruder with a hook. And then they kind of pan in on this intruder and James realizes that he has killed a young boy that reminds him of his son. So probably... Maybe 12 years old, maybe between like 10 and 12. So they take the bodies and they dump them in the sea. The three men endure their remaining time on the island, despite mounting distrust and tension. James in particular becomes unhinged, secluding himself in the tiny chapel nearby. Donald grows uneasy and insists that he and Thomas leave with the gold. Like, fuck James, man. He's losing his mind. He's going crazy. He doesn't want to deal with them. And at that point, James suddenly reappears and apologizes for his behavior. Once Donald and Thomas let their guards down, James locks Thomas in the pantry and he strangles Donald. Thomas breaks free and he is able to subdue James. Now finally ready to depart the island, Thomas and James board the dead visitor's boat with the gold. After throwing Donald's body overboard, James admits that he cannot bear to live with his guilt and he lowers himself into the water to end his life. He calls for Thomas to help with this last act, and Thomas complies by holding James's head underwater until he drowns, and then he takes the boat and he sails off alone, right? So hence the empty lighthouse, beginning the mystery of the three missing keepers. Now, Gerard Butler would be James Duckett, Peter Mullen as Thomas Marshall, and Connor Swindell's as Donald MacArthur. But again, they doesn't really match kind of the profile that they gave of the original three men. So definitely some liberties were taken with this movie. And the reason I think now that this is definitely a more plausible theory than the wave theory, there's a few reasons. Something made Donald MacArthur jump up and run outside without his outerwear on in the outer Hebrides in December. Something was going on, right? And it was something severe enough to make a very seasoned mariner and lightkeeper break the NLB regulations and leave the lighthouse unattended. But the door to the lighthouse and the outer gate were locked. Why? Why be in such an emergent rush? but stop to lock the doors. Who was Donald MacArthur worried about gaining entrance to the lighthouse? Did one by one go down and someone was waiting and killed all of them? So if, you know, James went down, he didn't come back after a couple hours knowing that they can't leave the lighthouse unattended. Did Thomas then go and try and find out what happened to James? And when he didn't return, You know, was Donald like, well, fuck, now I have to go down because where the hell is everybody, you know, probably sensing that something happened. Did the men see someone or someone's approaching? And two went out to see what was going on and never returned. And the third man, Donald, went out to see what was going on, but made sure to lock up so no one could sneak into the lighthouse while they were out there are so many different variations of this scenario that could have possibly taken place. I feel like that scenario of someone maybe approaching the island would make a little more sense than not one massive rogue wave based off localized weather that came in and swept away two keepers, but two rogue localized waves with a decent amount of time in between that also ended up taking out the third keeper. And yet, with all of the rocks and the geos that were, you know, down by the island, no bodies ever washed up or got caught in the geology of the area. But honestly, all these theories are just that. I mean, they're theories, guesses, assumptions. The truth is, we'll never know what happened to Donald MacArthur, Thomas Marshall, and James Duckett on December 15th, 1900. Now the lighthouse continued to employ keepers long after the men's disappearance. Several of the keepers fed the mystery around the lighthouse saying at night, they could hear someone calling out the men's names somewhere outside, you know, kind of voices in the wind sort of thing. In 1925, the lighthouse became one of the first Scottish lights to receive communications from the shore by wireless telegraphy, telegraphy, telegrams. They got telegrams and they were wireless. In the 1960s, the island's transport system was modernized. The railway was removed, leaving behind the concrete bed on which it had been laid to serve as the railway. On September 28, 1971, the lighthouse becomes automated. A reinforced concrete helipad was constructed at the same time to enable maintenance visits in heavy weather. The light is now produced by burning acetylene gas and it has a range of 17 nautical miles or 20 regular miles or 31 kilometers. It is now monitored fully from the butt of Lewis and the shore station there has been converted into and that's really all I have for this case. Thank you for joining me for another History's Mysteries. Those are on the first of every month. And every Monday, I upload a new episode focusing on a missing persons case or an unsolved mystery case. And that is my Missing Monday series. Every other Saturday is a solved Saturday case where I focus on a solved true crime case that has already had a legal resolution or is currently going through the judicial system or appeals process. Be sure to follow me so you don't miss an episode. Share, comment, give me a rating, all the categories. Thank you so much for being here and have a great day.